Listen up, sinners. This is Kyle from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We're going to be honest with you. We're fully aware you're filthy, immoral deviants, which is why we're offering a new service to our listeners. Indulgences. So here's how it works. You give us money, you don't burn an internal hellfire. Now, for tax purposes, we need to be a little creative with the transaction. So visit patreon.com slash trrpod and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and know you'll still find the pearly gates. Guess you'll also get bonus content like early episode access and roundtable conversations, but you're monsters. You know you need this. Shake off the darkness of the last one. Uh, All right, we're going to do a breathing exercise in with the good, out out with with the the bad, out with with all the poop. Well, there's going to be more poop. I'm sorry to say it. (laughs) We're not done. We're not done with the poop. Yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully, dear listener, you had some time to like recenter. We're just going right into it. Yeah, two episodes recorded in the same day. Kind of a one-two punch for us. We're we're simply pulling the Band-Aid. Yes. (laughs) Yes, the big, stinky, putsy Band-Aid. So much pus. Boobos. 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 Uh, this is, this is honestly a, the first time I realized just how awful the bubonic plague was. Yeah. Because I, like, I knew it was bad. fucking bad. But uh, whenever you really really get into the, uh, the meat of the situation, yeah. or the liquefied uh, meat of the situation. The, uh, yeah. the Monty Python fall over dead version is way less sticky. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, they play it a little cleaner. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. guessing there would have been shovels. You can only get yeah. so scatological in 1970s British this, cinema. This version has 100% less Graham Chapman in the story. I'm sorry to say. Well, I mean, much like so, so the do modern, me. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, much like the modern world after 1989. Uh, uh, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. Oh, jeez, we got dark before we even got to the material. Real fucking sad. Welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I'm Kyle Graper. And I am the Padre, Michael Ernett. All right. We are into part three on our story of the reign of the Emperor Justinian. And oh, what a part three it's going to be. The ash cleared, the sun opened up, and everything was fine. And right. it's been the, nothing, the birds please. are chirping, the please. fleas are jumping. Sunshine, puppy dogs, good harvest. Good night, everybody. No. <laughs> so, and they the lived life, happily yeah. ever after. So in the last episode, we spoke... Happily ever after. <laughs> this is how they teach it in Texas now. <laughs> so dispensing with the Texas textbook version of the story and into the real story, in the last episode, we spoke of a colossal climate event that led to a horrendous famine that nearly laid low Justinian's Byzantine Empire. But this was only part one of a one-two punch to the gut of Constantinople. The second blow would come in the form of an invader, unseen, stalking everyone from the emperor himself to the lowest slave. And the invader had a name, Yersinia Pestis. Much like in the last episode, I want to send out a bit of a content warning to what we're going to cover today. It is going to be fairly graphic. Um, Again, we don't do this to be gratuitous. We do this to tell the whole story and to really allow you to narrow down on the human experience. And the human experience in this part of the story is sheer terror and lunacy. 
everything just this entire story feels like everything's about to just completely come apart at the seams and it does well I think one of the things that going into you know we hear stories of the black death and we hear stories of you know these different plagues throughout history even for those of us who you know who study history and and who look back on it and there's this I I don't want to use the word whitewash there's this there's this clean version that we sanitized sanitized good word good word and I have the best words yeah we (laughs) (laughs) many people are saying (laughs) but people are studying studying going over this episode and what we're about to hear people need to understand this is what happened yeah also this episode's really going to help us understand there is nothing new under the sun yeah pretty much there's there's a lot of parallels a lot of parallel. Pretty much everything we're going to talk about in this episode has some sort of parallel to what's going I mean, on in 2020 and 2021. Think about the last two yeah, years. And the other and two times yeah, that this yeah, has happened. Yeah. And the other two times, yeah. Think about the last two years and add a lot more projectile blood vomit. Mm, I don't know. We don't. I mean, with what they're putting in the cocaine now. Mm. <laughs> hey, remember, mm. friends, uh, I don't care what you do in your own time, but uh, fentanyl test strips are definitely free. Yeah. So go get them. I notice, I, you've, I notice you've changed your tune from do bumps not lines. Well, it's still, <laughs> that's why I like Florida. They do cocaine yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they did give us the gator well, it's tail. Closer, it's closer to the source. But I mean, they look, also gave us eating a man's face off on bath salts. So. Was it on bath but salts? They Turns but, out he wasn't on bath salts. No, he was no. just on crazy. Yeah. Yep. They're, they're, they he, suspected he on, PCP, but it turns out, no, the guy was just super nice. Sober. Yeah, yep. He was on full psychotic break. That, yeah, well, that's, the best kind of drug. That's the old uh, the old Florida medical system, which yep. would have done just fine in the age of Justinian. They would have fit right in. But uh, <laughs> really again, again, friends, uh, regarding fentanyl, and I know this is a, a, maybe another trigger warning. Uh, I work in an industry where uh, people do a lot of a lot of things on their own time, oh. and within the last two months, uh, there are four fewer bartenders in the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah, uh, because shit's laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl's really, really bad. It's really, really bad. And again, I'm not telling you what to do. I, I am a reformed drug addict. I yeah. will gladly say that. I am going on uh, 14 years clean in December. Mm-hmm. But I will also say, like, I don't really give a shit what you do in your own time. Just be safe about it. Yeah, be safe, be smart. Just yeah. just be safe. Yeah. So go get those fentanyl test strips because, yeah. you know, I, I, I would like to still have coworkers and friends. So yeah. your public Patreon health yeah. subscribers, yeah. <laughs> right. your public health organizations have these available for free, as well as Narcan. Keep it on hand. Keep it around. Yeah, never just get it. Yeah. We, we it's free, see, and we nobody cares if you, you have it. We want to see you all in Valhalla eventually. We don't want you waiting for decades for us to show up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Hopefully, it takes us all a lot longer to get there. Yes, that's what the kilo variant with the blood vomits for. <laughs> that's so. it. <laughs> the old Justinian special. So, <laughs> the old Byzantium one two. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, God Almighty. <laughs> so yeah, so we just covered in the last episode. I mentioned the uh, Foster scale of human cataclysm, which I just discovered while researching these episodes, and it is a scale that measures death and human suffering to figure out which events are the worst that mankind has ever experienced. So, top three are. World War II, obviously, uh, then the Black Death, the sequel to what we're about to talk about, and World War I. Number four was what we just talked about in the previous episode, this massive climactic, climatic cataclysm. We're about to talk about number five, and they come within a year of each other. And this, is, this affects the entirety of—I don't even really want to say the known world— 
because like their their scope was fairly limited. I mean, yeah. they did a lot of trade and they 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 did quite a bit. But this affected everybody who kept written records at the time. Yeah. It was pretty much everyone but North America. Pretty and much South America. And and it was the Americas and mm. Australia. Yeah. If you were isolated yeah, we, we sociologically, get... you were fine. For now. I mean we <laughs> we got to you. But uh, four of the yeah. seven continents got rocked by this thing. Yeah. And this and is whenever a large portion later. of South America was destroyed by a giant eruption. So, uh, again, as always, we want to give honor to our sources before we proceed. Uh, the sources used in this episode are The Glittering Horn, memoir, Memoirs of the Court of Justinian by Pearson Dixon. The main source for this episode, Justinian's Flea by William Rosen. And then we have three contemporary sources. We have The Secret History by Procopius. We have The Chronicle by John Malalas. And The Ecclesiastical History by the always amusingly named Evagrius Scholasticus. Every time you say that name, I think of the, the book fair in elementary school. So my two positive memories from grade school were the book fair and free pizzas from Pizza Hut for eating goosebumps. Oh, book oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. The book it club. Yeah. They got to bring that shit back. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, on that positive note, let's just dive head first. <laughs> now we're going to just rip your still beating heart from your chest. So what that pan pizza did to your backside. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Into the sewer. Actually, honestly, I think pizza's why I found out I had Crohn's when I did. Speaking of diseases, this is not an endorsement <laughs> no. of, uh, of Pizza Hut. So oh, if you're listening, oh yeah, you know. shockingly, you bringing Crohn's into it is not going to bring the ad money rolling in. Uh, yeah, you're kidding me. I mean, I st- so yeah, but I still eat it. Mm. Pizza Hut might have saved it's his that life. That good. It's <laughs> that good. <laughs> so we mentioned an invader, Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis is a small, teeny tiny little bacterium, a bacillus. So small that to see any real detail, you need yourself an electron microscope. Now, we don't really quite know how long it's been around for sure, but it seems to have emerged evolutionarily somewhere between 15 and 25,000 years ago, according to the fossil record. And yes, there are fossils of the bacteria. And the first evidence of its interaction with human came, humans came from the remains of a hunter-gatherer found in Ukraine from about 7,000 years ago. It... Now, it Whenever I was looking into this, and they they find fossil records, and there's in the in the graves uh, where Justinian was burying his his constituents, for lack of a better word. There you go. Um, they found evidence of it. Mm-hmm. How close are they looking at this stuff? Like to the point where they well, they you, know well, retrieve, they know what killed people then. You they retrieve know. the remains. You get back. Well, because what they want to do is they want to try to get as many examples of a sequenceable genome. And this is when we know that this yeah. happened. What are they looking for in these cavemen? Good lord, the amount of information that they are pulling from these fossilized you t- you take remains. It back to the lab. It's, it's there. unbelievable. Yeah. They do the same thing for, for dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, at Just this point... Just pouring over yeah. every, every you look micron you, well, you gotta look, well, yeah, you gotta look, and you gotta look close because you never know what the next fossil is gonna Absolutely tell you. Absolutely fascinating, man. Yeah. Next thing you know, Jeff Goldblum's gonna end up with his leg broke on an island. Just shirtless, laying all sexy, greased yeah. up, and yeah. Oof. Yeah. Ooh, mama. Interaction with larger segments of the human population may have taken place more recently than that, and before the events we're describing. But there's no record of anything large scale, either in the archaeological record or in written records. These interactions, though, would have become would become some of the worst mass tragedies to befall mankind, because those interactions we talk are talked about in one simple word: plague. What we're going to talk about now is the first of three great plague pandemics to strike the world in the 15th century since. 
The second we've all heard of. In the 1340s, the entire Eurasian world was ravaged by the worst single disease outbreak ever recorded, and it's come down in history as the Black Death, or the Great Mortality. It killed somewhere between 30 and 40% of the populations of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, claiming possibly as many as 200 million lives, which is why it's event number two on the Foster scale. It technically lasted until 1666, making a return every couple decades to take 5 million here, 10 million there, and so on. Now, the third Great Plague pandemic was a bit more of a slow burn compared to the other two, beginning in China in 1855, and it killed about 15 million people over its run in India, China, Mongolia, Hong Kong, the Philippines, South America, even California, and it didn't officially end until... Guys, any guesses? It was uh, the 1969? 1960. It did, however... In the research I had... Was there were still outbreaks um, in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. that we didn't know about until later because... Particularly during the Vietnam War. Right. Yeah. It People did, are still catching it today. Well, we're getting to that. It did, however, lead to the classification of Yersinia pestis, and over the course of the third pandemic, treatments obviously dramatically improved. But, but as you said, Kyle, here's the best part. The plague is still around. Since the turn of the millennium, about 600 cases of plague have been reported by the World Health Organization every year. The good news is that with access to modern healthcare resources, the survivability rate is between 90 and 95%. But this access doesn't happen in all cases, and there's still about 150 to 200 deaths a year worldwide. Larger scale outbreaks still do occur, though. Uh, in 1999 in India, about 650 people died in an outbreak in the central part of the country out of about 5,000 cases. And in 2007 in Madagascar, an outbreak killed about 45 people. About 5 to 15 people a year catch it in the U.S., mostly out in the western states, due to exposure from fleas carried on animals like prairie dogs and rock squirrels. Uh, here, since about 1980, we've had an average of... I'm just imagining, yeah, like, squirrels. the Marvel's the thing as a squirrel now. <laughs> it's just rock lobsters. Yeah. Rock lobsters. We I call them just... land rock lobsters. <laughs> I was just going to say, think about these statistics next time you see uh, Malibu spring break and guys butt chugging, but rock squirrels? <laughs> the silent killer. Mm. Yes. So, here in the U.S. since about 1980, we've had an average of one death from the plague every 18 months or so. Luckily, there hasn't been a reported fatal case since 2017, when a 16-year-old boy died in Colorado. It's still found in animals all the time, though, most often on the Eurasian steppe, but often quite here in the U.S. Um, I believe we mentioned at the end of the last episode earlier this year in Utah, four cougars were found dead from the plague. So, how does the plague spread? Like I mentioned earlier, the plague first appeared in some of the animal life of the Eurasian steppe, particularly in smaller creatures like the marmot, the Suslik ground squirrel, the polecat, the steppe hare, and the cutest, yet most sinister of the bunch, the gerbil. Fucking gerbils. I knew it. I knew it. Now, it's believed that the gerbil was the main animal vector in bringing Y-Pestis into contact with humans in the 540s getting into the food stores of travelers and traders on the Silk Road. Genocidal motherfuckers. Hey, you know what? Maybe that's how Walt Flanagan died. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Kevin Smith, if you're still listening, we'd love to work with VSQ. Just want to let you know. So the presence of the gerbils wasn't really the main issue, though. It was what the gerbils carried. Xenocilla chiopis, the rodent flea. And what happens is that the flea bites the gerbil, feeds from the gerbil's bloodstream, but in that blood is the Y. pestis bacterium. Once the bacterium propagates within the blood in the flea's stomach, the blood coagulates before it can be digested. 
And it's believed that this causes the flea to feel the need to constantly feed, yet it can't. So it bites, and it bites, and it bites, and when it realizes the creature it's on cannot provide that food, it leaps off to other potential sources, be it another animal, or if it's close enough, a person. It was college me at 4 a.m. Pretty in much. Oakland. <clears throat> the biting continues, but every time the flea bites, not only is it not feeding, it's regurgitating small amounts of that coagulated material filled with the Y. pestis into the bloodstream of whatever it bites. Not me in college. <laughs> no, that was everybody at the O. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Once these fleas get close enough to a population center, though, not only are there more human passengers and food sources, but also a creature that provides the flea with the means to travel wherever it wants to go and has a population level high enough that they're everywhere and cannot be gotten Can right I please up. say the Latin name? Yes. Radis. Radis. Thank you, Carl Linnaeus. <laughs> yes. The, the black rat. The simplest Latin classification I've ever heard. It's so beautiful. It's so easy. What do we... Do you think... Okay, did they name that first or last? Because there's an element of, well, this is the last one we've got. Ah, fuck it. Radis, Radis. Radis, Radis is fine. Yeah. They, I mean, they were naming lots of shit. That's true. There was a lot. I mean, they could have been one of those things they just actively disliked and were like, fuck it. I guess we have to name it eventually. Yeah. I mean, it does suck. Like, it's... A the black rat there's there's not a lot of redeeming qualities to a black rat uh, we're gonna get angry messages from people who have rats as i pets, know we're gonna we? have rat people but i mean yeah. like but the new york city rat the pizza rat is not your friend <laughs> uh new hey, york you're talking the big about shredder apple. right no that he's a little different a rat but it was the ooze that made him just so <laughs> so damned wholesome a gigantic rat dragging a slice of pizza chris christie fighting a rat over a slice, a slice of pizza, of pizza. <laughs> So, yes. Chris so, Christie's fighting everybody over the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. You know, if New York had recall elections like California did, Pizza Rat would be the governor of New York right now. That is true. So I mean, at that point, like, even looking through everybody involved in, in current like, recall elections, I'm almost pro-rat. Can't make things worse. No. <laughs> Vote Buckethead. <laughs> well, okay, and we're on to politicians. So speaking of plagues, uh, once... Oh, once the plague is present in the rat population, game over. They can get absolutely everywhere because rats are in homes, on streets, and in the holds of ships. Although the plague does kill rats, there's always a proportion of the rat population that survives, and they also breed so damn fast that it doesn't really matter how many rats the plague kills, there are always more running around to carry the Their fleas. Their breeding is insane. Yeah. Like, uh, the numbers are, like, insect-like. They, they sire uh, tens of thousands yeah. of rats. Yeah. Uh, one, because one what pair, else do they have to do? I get it. One breeding Eat? pair of rats without any population loss factored in can end up in the end of five years uninterrupted breeding with 347 million rats. Mm -hmm. That's how fast they breed. <clears throat> and this so, is at a time, wait, now, now we're only starting to get good at eliminating yeah. rats. Yeah. And even then, we're losing. Well, not yep. only that, we're we're storing food at the, like these grain stores we talked about for the military. But like all the like places the rats where Rob, feed off that too. Every all the places where Rob said rats were, they still are. They still are. Yeah, yeah. I have a story. My mother, very very innocent. Was she a rat? I'm sorry, I didn't no, mean to be offensive. Not, no, she was she <laughs> mixed was company. Rat. Kyle, mixed company. <laughs> uh, we were watching a we were watching a thing where a train cars had overturned. It was national news out in uh, out in Nebraska. And the thing that they were showing on the television was all these black snakes coming up. And my mom, who's a very intelligent woman, looked at my dad and said, I, I didn't think black snakes ate grain. I, think, yeah, I thought snakes were carnivores. 
And my dad said, no, honey, they're eating the rats. Yeah. Because as soon as the grain hit the ground. Mice were on it. The mice were on it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Now, in addition to dealing with rats, the plague also kills a lot of other types of animals, too. Some of which have a particularly close proximity to people, like dogs, cats, and horses. And what about feral, the, feral what? pigs. Oh, damn it, not the street pigs. Street pigs. <laughs> and boink, roving, boink, 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 roving boink, gangs boink, boink. Of, of just rough, tough pigs with switchblades totally and zip guns. West Swine story, baby. <laughs> God, I can't what? wait for Babe 3. What? Where, where Babe just settles scores. When society fails and Listen, I start hey, boy, my... you better shape up or I'm going to make bacon out of you. <laughs> when society falls... That's going to be my apocalyptic gang's name. Street pigs. Street pigs. Nice. I'm in. All right. I'm in. So once the plague... I was in for the sex call. Of course I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. in for a gang of street pigs. <laughs> now, once the plague is present among a population, it loves to spread in areas that are warm and at least temperate and preferably on the damper side. It propagates more in the summer months, and while it can survive in areas that are cooler or drier, if it has the population level able to sustain and pass it along the speed at which the infection rate travels does tend to be slower. Now, the plague also loves environments where the population has compromised immune systems. And given that the plague outbreak followed a nice little period of four years of mass starvation and malnutrition, the weakened immune systems of the population made a perfect target for plague infection. You mean bacteria and viruses follow a line of compromised immune systems? Who would have thunk it, huh? Sounds familiar. Nothing new. Now, once the plague is in your system, without modern medicine, to put it simply, you're fucked. Because of all the ways in which the plague can kill you, and yes, I said ways plural, because the plague comes in, count them, three different varieties. Vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. No. Bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. Woohoo! Septicemic! And what's really fun is that sometimes you only get one, but sometimes you get the combo deal. So, bubonic plague is by far the most common variety, which is why you hear the term being used as shorthand for all the plague outbreaks. Usually present in the body from anywhere for two to six days before symptoms start to appear. The first signs are usually fever, chills, nausea, and muscle cramps, as well as unexplained pain in the neck, armpits, groin, and the site of where the fleas have bitten you. Then comes the swelling in these areas, around the lymph nodes. These dark swellings are known as buboes from which the bubonic plague gets its name. These bubos are a combination of both the pus common to infections, but an extra element as well. The bacteria is so toxic that the tissue around the lymph nodes begins to break down and rot, becoming a black soup that mixes with the pus to give these swellings a dark appearance. These swellings can often break apart with the slightest pressure, spilling a foul-smelling mess of infectious gunk everywhere that can go on to infect anyone who comes into close contact with it. With this brutal infection can also come gangrenous necrotizing of the tissue in the extremities like the fingers, toes, nose, ears, and lips. Victims often vomit blood that has plenty of the play bacteria in it, paired with a hacking cough that sprays mucus filled with the infection into the air. Boy, what a clever little son of a bitch, yeah. man. Well, victims will also suffer from a loss of bowel control and frequent leakage from the anus and the urethra. Breathing can become labored and difficult, and extreme fatigue can set in. Oftentimes, mercifully, the victim will fall into a coma or become delirious, losing touch with reality while their bodies fight to cope with the disease. 
Usually if death comes, it's within five to 10 days with the victim being claimed usually by organ failure or in some cases cardiac arrest due to the stress on the circulatory system. This all reads like the very end of a commercial for like blood pressure medication. <laughs> yeah, just reading it too <laughs> slow. Where, where everybody's like high-fiving each other and picking flowers. <laughs> They're, they're just kayaking. Seepage. It's like, and they, like pus comes out your dick hole. <laughs> and they they're say it. The they say it all bathtubs. really. They say it all really fast, really monotone, <laughs> and really low. Renegadium can lead to fever, upset stomach, headache, bad bad return value on your mortgage, high insurance rates, like bubonic plague, yeah. projectile vomiting of blood, the lurgy, the forty-eight year creeping Jesus. So. The bubonic plague, if untreated by modern medicine, usually has a mortality rate of between 60 and 70%. Pneumonic plague is a far less common variant that does things a little differently. Although it's acquired the same way and carries some of the same symptoms like fever, diarrhea, fatigue, and some lesser swelling of the area around the lymph nodes, it doesn't come with the same necrotizing qualities usually. Instead, uh, can, can I ask something? Yeah. You, not alive. You kind of glazed over that. You, you said fever, diarrhea... Now, in the last one, you described a really, really bad diarrhea. Oh, uncontrollable. Okay. Yeah. A, a, a diarrhea over which you have no control. I don't want to dwell on it. Okay. So, it does. In, instead, after an incubation period of three to seven days, the pneumonic variant aggressively attacks the lungs. Indicators here include chest pains, shortness of breath, and a terrible watery cough, usually accompanied with atomized blood. You go on to develop full-blown pneumonia, but where the pneumonic plague differs is how the infection goes on not only to inflame the lung tissue, but to begin to break it down rapidly, causing you to slowly drown in a slurry of watery sputum and broken-down lung tissue. Shock and respiratory failure soon set in, and this is usually what kills the victim. The silver lining here is that pneumonic plague usually kills the victim in only two to four days, lessening the time they have to suffer. Well, which is what, which so interesting about these variants to me is the reason bubonic is so much more common is it's less efficient mm -hmm. because these other versions could use so goddamn fast it can't spread. And we'll get to the worst one in a second. Oh, this is the downside of pneumonic plague is that well the the downside in this context is that the mortality rate, if not treated by modern techniques, is much higher, somewhere between ninety and ninety-five percent. The worst version of the plague, though, by far, is the septicemic plague. This version oh, is thankfully God. very uncommon due to how fast it kills the victims and limits its own spread, as you just mentioned. With the septicemic variant, many of the symptoms of the plague mentioned earlier are seen in its victims without the multiple-day incubation period. Fever, seizures, glandular swelling, vomiting, bleeding from any orifice, uh, especially the eyes and ears, which is a fun little, fat, uh, fun little uh, uh, feature there and the necrotizing of tissue in the extremities. But what makes the septicemic variant so terrible is that the plague bacteria, once it's in your system, replicates so quickly that bursts of it travel through the bloodstream to every part of your body. As it travels, it creates billions of tiny little blood clots that tend to collect in the extremities, but this depletes the body's clotting resources and thus leads to unclottable blood diffusing throughout the body, causing, your bl causing redness and swelling across your entire body. The massive amount of toxic bacteria in your bloodstream sends your immune system into an unstoppable overdrive. And while fever is usually a result of the immune system working hard to stop an infection, the fever that results from septicemic plague is so high that it causes a domino effect of organ failure because you are so 
hot, your body heat is so high, you're basically being cooked in your own skin. Now, while the septicemic plague has the shortest incubation period of any variant, around 24 hours, once the symptoms start to show, the victim is usually killed within an average of 15 and a half hours. But in those 15 hours, you are a flaming plague balloon. You yeah. are abundantly clear. It, yeah. it has been made abundantly clear yeah. to you that this is it. So, well, in the well, 19, well, 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 that 1999 India outbreak, where one spur of it led to the death of six people from septicemic plague, one of those victims... So, the highest measured body temperature, sustained body temperature survived by anybody was 115 degrees. Jesus. Sustained body temperatures of 106 or more are almost guaranteed to cause brain damage. Yeah, I, uh, last time that I, I was unwell, uh, I was hospitalized because my temperature was 104.7. Yeah. Yeah, and at that point, gave me and at that point, like there was a man who had cut most of his hand off with a circular saw, and I went first in the emergency room. Yeah, no. so they managed to get with with modern technology managed to get body temperature readings of one of the victims before he died. Mike, how high was that body temperature? One hundred and fifteen degrees, I believe. Right? No, it was oh. much. Higher oh no, no, no! Oh, oh uh, uh, the, the 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 temperature in the in the case in India. Yeah. 140. You're a boil in a bag meal. That's unbelievable. I mean, that's now, 140 degrees. Now, it, it, it burns the skin to the touch. Chris, you were talking about it. You, you were hospitalized at, one, uh, at 104. Because they're like, this, if this goes I, up another degree, you might not be able to, you know, walk anymore now, or whenever your brain just starts to melt. Now, here's where I'm going to kind of bring things down just, just a tad as far as bring some humanity into this. Mm-hmm. We talked about this on the way up here. Yeah. I had a 104.5 at the point where my ex-wife was getting ready to take me to the hospital. Fortunately, mine broke. At 104.5 degrees, I was hallucinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did not know who I was. <clears throat> the only time I felt like that outside being sick was, just going to say it, I was under the influence of either psilocybin or LSD. Mm-hmm. I did not know I was. Oh, it's a waking so I fever can only, yeah. I can only believe that at least the person that's at 140 degrees, that's at 115 degrees, has no freaking idea that they're there. Uh, they apparently don't. Because once blessing. you get anywhere Let's close to 140, your brain shuts itself down completely. It, it's been shut down. It's it's brain right. death. The rest of the body is just catching up. And by the way, at 140 degrees sustained body temperature, it's a good thing that your organs are already starting to dissolve in your own skeleton. Because if they weren't, they would burst. I'm going to point out, as we're, we're all people that have been in the service industry, a fully cooked pork steak is 165 internal temperature. Yep. Yeah, at 140, you're a steakhouse medium rare. Yeah. Right. So from the first two plague pandemics, there are stories of so-and-so went to an inn and everyone that night was fine, but when they woke up the next morning, everyone was dead. And while some of this is probably just storytelling, it's possible that septicemic plague may be to blame. In 1351, during the Black Death, King Alfonso XI of Spain and about three-quarters of his army... <clears throat> were recorded to have died of plague whilst besieging a Muslim stronghold, and it was said that they all perished in the span of only two days. And again, it could be exaggeration, but it is possible that the septicemic variant swept through the close confines of the siege camp with lethal effect. 
And lethal is the right word too, because you only survive the septicemic plague if you start a heavy course of antibiotics and support treatment after exposure, but before the symptoms set in. Without this, the mortality rate of septicemic plague is 100%. Unless you get rushed to the ICU as soon as you are exposed and you're going to the ICU, you're, you're done. So even if you survive the plague, there's no immunity towards catching it again. Oh, because it's a bacteria. It's, it's bacteria. not a virus. It's not a virus. And so reinfection can and did often happen. While surviving a plague infection can give the immune system some decent data at counteracting the plague bacillus, the ravages that the plague inflicts on the body can compromise the immune system more long-term, negating that improved immune programming. People can and did catch the plague multiple times and few survived the experience. It also left a lot of fun other effects, too. The necrosis in the extremities that many sufferers dealt with meant that there was quite a lot of amputation, normally later after recovery, of fingers, toes, ears, even noses. The buboes would also destroy tissue in the area around the lymph nodes, leaving survivors with not only gnarly scars where those could be found, but also crooks in their necks, loss of use in arms, or limps from the buboes in the groin. Yeah, I mean, your flesh went necrotic. Yeah. Like, it, it's that just does gone. not get better. And it doesn't grow back. Yeah. Now, the few who survived pneumonic plague would likely deal with lifelong respiratory issues. Plus, the weakened immune system could make you more likely to die from the many other diseases still going around the world of late antiquity that would kill your ass stone dead. So it was pretty much taken as a given that plague survivors probably wouldn't get a lot of long decades of life after recovery. I mean, you were only guaranteed, well, like, well, you weren't guaranteed any decades. The average yeah, lifespan was mid-40s. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. You know, given, given our study, given the three, the three types... I I would have I would have begged for septicemia. Uh, I'm telling you, no. door number three. Quick, no, mnemonic's the way to go. Mnemonic's the way to go. Septicemic is the most pain. It's it's pain it's rate to thirteen, but for fifteen hours. Mm, probably about two hours because you tend to just go to sleep. Yeah, you're yeah you're going to reach a point where. It, it's going to yeah. be hell for two hours. Pneumonics the, the, the brain pneumonics dies. The rest two, of the body just takes time yeah, to catch pneumonics up. Pneumonics two days of projectile vomiting blood, which you just point at the people you dislike and. Well, okay, you make a good it, point. It does give you the chance for that sweet, sweet, very, that very death metal. three style score settling. But but a lot of this goes into it, how much do you is, owe me? <laughs> but this is this has a lot to do with the bacterial variants. Going back to what we were talking about, the reason that bubonic stuck around more than any of the others because it's less efficient at killing. Well, because what is the what is the uh, what is the purpose of the bacteria to pre- procreate and survive? I mean, it's a living thing. That's pretty right. much what we're all yeah. programmed right. to do. Exactly. Even plants. So, so the, the 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 bubonic style is going to maintain itself a lot better than septicemia yeah. because sept- the septicemic. Kills the host immediately. Yeah. Two burns right. out too yeah. quickly. Right. The one with the lowest mortality rate is technically the most efficient. Yeah. So now, that terrible invader whose effects we just described was heading towards the beating heart of the Byzantine Empire, and it didn't take long to make its presence known. It started in the areas around the docks as the rats poured out of the ship's holds at night. Maybe it was some sailor coming ashore, shivering and coughing, nearly delirious with fever, hiding the swelling in his groins and armpit in his groin and armpits. Don't describe my first six months after boot camp. <sighs> Perhaps some dock worker went aboard a ship, only to find to their horror dead crew members in the hold, eyes still wide with terror, covered in dried pus, blood, and feces, the blackened necrosis in their extremities evident. Slowly it went, bit by bit, neighborhood by neighborhood, tenement by tenement, 
until the hot spots melted into one big horror show. You also just described the first six months after the Four Locos came out for the first time. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. I, I was going to say, I'll never forget the first time I had a Four Loco. I, I, you can't remember the first time you had a Four Loco. You just wake up, people tell you about awful things you did. Yeah, you died in 15 hours. Yeah, it's like, what happened? I was like, oh yeah, I had a great night, and we had a Four Loco, and then yeah, I woke up at home. Like, Chris, you flipped an ambulance with your bare hands. Like, <laughs> my, my, favorite, my favorite family picnic moment was that one of my cousins had a watermelon Four Loco and handed it to my mom. She took a sip and said, Damn, these are pretty good. <laughs> the best God, is when there were no. all those like all those like frat and sorority houses where everyone thought they got roofied and was like, oh no, they just went through two cases of Four Loco. I remember drinking. I mean, they it. really neutered them, but then people are still going out today and climbing milk crates. Honestly, so, uh, I, I had the, I had one like um, like a couple weeks ago. And hey, Tony, they, they nerfed it. It's still yeah. insta hangover. I have and, I have an original it's still somewhere. Full of I think sugar. It's a garage, but I do I have an original Four Loco that I'm just afraid of. I think I'm gonna like. Bury it with like an, up, an upside down statue right, or something right. on it. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm st- I'm steering this back away from a 21st century menace to a 6th century menace. But so I want to talk about sparks, the energy beer. <laughs> so as the plague spread you, throughout, you pissed orange then too. Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice when your pee looks like iron brew. <laughs> so as the plague spread throughout the capital, it also spread from the capital along every spoke that moved out from Constantinople's massive trade hub. Both overland and by sea to every Globalization. corner. <laughs> to every corner of Byzantine land and beyond. Now would come a time where the plague came and went in cycles, burning through a population group and receding, only to return the next year or the year after that, as another source brought a new round of Y pestis into the community. In Constantinople it was always at least at some sort of slow burn, but in some places half a decade could go by between outbreaks. Just long enough for these communities to believe they were finally free. There was almost no part of the empire that was untouched, with the exception of some of the most remote or just plain damn luckiest little villages, towns, and farmsteads. But the plague's path of destruction was certainly not limited to the bounds of the Byzantine territory. Monastic records in France, Ireland, and Spain all mention a great pestilence that swept the land, taking thousands with it. The Sassanid Persian Empire, Byzantium's troublesome neighbor, got absolutely walloped by the plague, with much the same effect that the plague had on the Byzantines. In the capital of Tessaphon, which itself was home to almost half a million, people were dying by the thousands every day. The plague used the Byzantine Empire's long-established trade networks to travel to Italy, Sicily, France, the Low Countries, and the British Isles. It swept down through the Middle East, across North Africa, and down into the Arabian Peninsula. The Balkans were ravaged, hard. It made its way all the way up into Scandinavia and to the Baltic. Eastern Europe was not spared. And neither were the regions bordering the Black Sea. Although the Sahara and the sweeping glass, grasslands of sub-Saharan Africa provided a barrier, the, still, the plague still made its presence known in Ethiopia and many of the coastal trading settlements down Africa's eastern coasts. It swept through what is now Iran and Afghanistan, Pakistan, and into India, particularly along the coasts. It also traveled east, back across the Silk Road, hitting massive trading stops like Merv and Samarkand, and laying waste to western China and Mongolia. It doesn't appear to have reached the eastern part of Asia or down into Indochina, at least not on a large scale, and places like Indonesia, Australia, and the Americas don't appear to have been touched, the great expanses of the oceans providing too great of a barrier. However, for all the territory the plague covered, the absolute epicenter was where the bulk of our story takes place in Constantinople itself. The capital, within weeks, was a charnel house. Procopius states that the city was suffering at the height of the outbreak 10,000 deaths per day, 
And although this is probably exaggerated, it's still likely that the death toll averaged in the thousands anyhow. In the spring of 542, the city may have lost as many as 150,000 people in three months. There was nowhere to bury the dead. There was not enough wood available to cremate them all. They were literally, sta- yeah, stacked. Stacked, stacked, stacked like cordwood. Yeah. There simply weren't enough people around who were healthy enough or willing enough to help. The dead littered the streets, fed on by dogs and pigs, who would in turn die of the plague, spreading it further. Yeah, because anything on legs caught this fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... It, 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 mammalian. The, 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 yeah, I was going to say, the, the big thing is, is it was mammalian. For some and reason, bears we, and skunks tend to be immune, and, and I don't know why. I never... I, I, wow, I didn't have time to find fucking... out. So I mean, it's those hoity-toity French skunks you mm. gotta watch out for. Yeah, well, you, not, you don't have to watch out for them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the, hashtag me too. <laughs> the entire funerary industry broke down, except for the lucky few who were able, who were willing and able to pay the now outrageous rates demanded for burial and final rites. I mean, think about New York State 18 months ago, where we had refrigerator carts outside of New York City. What do you mean had? Have yeah. refrigerator <laughs> carts outside of New York City in? It's this. Modern it's that times. dialed up to a thousand. Yeah. Well, now they, they ran out of dirt to put bodies in. But well, it, now maybe they could pay, but that's also if there were enough undertakers left alive after exposure to all of the plague dead. Well, here's a picture. That, here's here's the analogy that I think about when I think about 150,000 people dead. Mm-hmm. That's in three months. Now, we had this big election back in 2020. And people were yelling. No, I completely people, forgot. I, I, I read about it in the papers. People people were making the claim that one particular candidate was better than another particular candidate because 150,000 people in this country were dead. That was over 320 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is over one fucking city in the span of a season 20% of the city gone right so the cemeteries and the catacombs were overflowing with the dead within days and I do mean overflowing because some of the catacombs it's not like you could get down in and then it was filled with bodies you couldn't get in right because people would just take their dead relatives and just leave them there it, it, it the cemetery mass graves had to be dug Outside the city, the dead transported in carts or on barges to be, as you said, stacked like cordwood by their hundreds in the plague pits. The dead became so numerous that the ground available for plague pits soon filled up, and the orders came down to pull the top layer of masonry off of Constantinople's massive Theodosian walls, pull out some of the wall's rubble core, and throw in the dead by their thousands to be sealed within the wall. This is backed up by archaeology, where digs of the wall site have turned up masses of human remains mixed in with the stone and the brick. Which, honestly, would have been better than the pits, because rats love corpses. Mm, but Rats are carrying the fleas that are spreading this thing, so by bundling them up behind masonry... They prob- still have enough gaps for rats to get through. Oh. It didn't help. I mean, all it did was just free up real estate. <laughs> To put more dead people. That I mean, that's really it. Yeah, they, they simply ran out of places to yeah. put the bodies. So some of the wealthier citizens who had country estates to go to fled. Others retreated into their villas and townhouses, sending out the slaves and servants into the plague-filled city to acquire supplies, staying locked down until things were over. 
Kind of like when a guy uh, gets a penis rocket and tries to fly to space. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to say, like when Justinian took his daughters to Cancun just on vacation. Oh, I was going to say when Justinian got on uh, got on YouTube singing Imagine. Shit, I mean, when 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 you lived in your suburban home and all your groceries for eighteen months were delivered by some poor bastard who works for Amazon. Exactly. That's why. That's why. That's why I went with the penis rocket because he's trying to leave the planet. While he's sending other people out to, at twelve dollars an hour to uh, Build me give machi- other people stuff. <laughs> Build me a machine. I wish to fuck the sky. But he so, did have that yeah. super wholesome cowboy hat, so that you know he's just like you and I. Yeah. Yes, he now, is. <laughs> other people just simply went about their business, convinced that a smelling pometer would keep the plague at bay, or just believing that God would protect them and they wouldn't have to change any behaviors at all. Again, does it sound fucking familiar? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, that's t- today something like that would yeah. just be totally ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, most of the population, of course, wasn't so lucky enough to be able to isolate. Their poverty demanded that they keep working, often under the pain of draconian punishment from bosses or government officials. Or Sam Walton. Yeah. And the crowding of the city took away their option to separate from other people. Citizens began wearing clay name badges on strings around their necks in case they died on the street so they could be returned to their families. To stay two chariots apart yeah. at all times. Well, and, 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 well, and, and hey, if, you, if you're going to work at McDonald's, they actually do give you a um, semi-clay name badge. Well, I mean, if you work at the one on Wood Street, you need it. Yeah. <laughs> Higher mortality rate than the bubonic plague, man. <laughs> they might stab yeah. you in the neck. In the tightly packed tenements, the plague blew through like a brush fire. Entire eight- or nine-story buildings would have their residents wiped out. Often, when someone was discovered to have the plague, the rest of the household would simply leave them there, locking the door and fleeing in terror, leaving their kith and kin to die alone, discarded. See, that's that's one of the things that, that actually... You're talking about plague nightmares? That's one of the things that I... It was the plague nightmare I had. I, I mean... Just being locked in my house and left to die. Yeah, I, do, yeah you get the, the the X on the door and that's it. Because because we'll, your we'll fam- go back in a couple weeks. Because your family wants to survive, it's not. It's not. It, it, that's what hurts. Yeah, you know? it's an impossible it, decision. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But also, the cities were filled with people at their windows screaming for help. Yes. John Malalas. For years. John Malalas writes in his chronicle that the normal noises of the city, the clanging of industry, the chatter of markets, and the baying of animals were replaced only by the sounds of unending weeping, the screams of those locked away to die, fervent prayer, and the church bells tolling to mourn the dead endlessly. Well, I can't believe that personally, and I got a, I got a good mom, I guess. I can't believe that my mother would lock me in a house put the X on and not be weeping with me. You know what I mean? That's what makes it very human for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I mean... And I, I'm sure there were people who didn't. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. there's people oh, who I'm locked, sure this, yeah, sure they this locked themselves in. This is right. absolutely not universal. But at this point, yeah. But it happened. But at this right. point, you've watched so many people die of this. And when you're watching someone die of this, I don't care how much you love somebody. Well, I don't want to bleed out my well, lungs and, while I and, shit but, myself. But Kyle, we that's, can assume that's what I'm saying. I would not blame my no. mother for locking mm, the door and leaving. Know. Yeah. And also, yeah, this was the the decision was you lock them in and they die, or you lock everyone in yeah. and you all, all die. die. And right. also, Guaranteed. let's be real about this. 
mass suicides happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And human euthanasia happened mm-hmm. right. on a large scale. We cannot I mean, deny this. It this must is... have happened when you put that many people in this situation. I mean, that's... I, like I said, I just I did. We're, we're we're talking about a lot of facts. We're being really, really difficult about the yeah. the the technical effects of this. This was very human to these people. This yeah. was not just oh well, you know, well fuck my family. I'm gonna lock him in the door and and go. People were hurting while yeah. this was happening. It's, it's this broke hearts. This broke minds. It's a fight or flight trauma. situation right. where fight has been removed from the equation yeah. right there there's no nothing way to fight. There's there's nothing you can't you, fight it no you, you fight or point, you, you can't fight you fly or you freeze yeah and those are your only two right. options mm-hmm. so malalas also wrote that you could smell the death of constantinople on the air in nicodemia the oh, rot of thousands of unburied corpses being carried on the wind nicodemia is a hundred miles away from Constantinople. Good Lord. Societal breakdown was quick to follow. Some aspects of life halted altogether and much of the daily work to keep the city clean ceased. Sewage overflowed from the open gutters, rubbish piled up, and stockpiles of resources of every kind were left to sit. Food rotted in warehouses and granaries. Building maintenance halted and standards fell, leading to building collapses that killed hundreds. That would be putting Constantinople at the point in downtown Pittsburgh and smelling the death in State College. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which normally smells like death. Right, yeah, but you know, the wind doesn't always go that way. Yeah. So that's fair. Exactly. Crime shot up. Robberies, assaults, rapes, and murders became more endemic in the city than they had ever been. People fought and killed each other over resources that were fast becoming scarce. Some sectors of the population began to starve all over again, returning to the hell of the previous years when the sun went out. Starving people could be seen attacking and eating animals in the street, infected with the plague, only to die days after consuming the corrupted flesh as Yersinia pestis worked its deadly trade. However, on a lighter note, what really began to prevail were crimes of a more meth-head sort of nature. (laughs) Uh, A popular one was the... Is this Florida, man? (laughs) A little less stripping of copper wire, but it's... A popular one was the theft of lead roofing tiles... And the copper and iron fixtures that held torches or lamps or door signs. Okay, so they were stealing copper. It is <laughs> pretty much, yes. This is Florida, man. It is Florida. Florida for scrap. Well, but also, you had entire households die, so, like, someone's got to take that wealth. They don't need it. Uh, and the biggest target, however, for theft were the clothes and personal possessions of the plague dead. Bodies would be dug up out of the plague pits and their flea-ridden, contaminated clothes taken. Funeral processions for the more well-to-do would be attacked and raided by gangs of desperate peasants. Even for those who wouldn't fall victim to the plague itself, life had found other ways to become even more nasty, brutish, and short. And of course, Byzantine society being as dominated by the church as it was, particularly in the population centers, the religious reactions to the plague were as grandiose and as weird as you would expect. Super balanced and mild and reasonable, right? Right? Well, right. well, well, you know, honestly, it doesn't always start that way, but it well, it does have a way of balancing itself out. Mm-hmm. Now, priests jacked up the price of their services to outrageous levels for anything from last rites to confession to baptisms. Of course, the plague was seen as punishment from God for people's sins. This would be the case of every plague outbreak from this point forth, everywhere in the Christian world, not to the present day, if you listen to some preachers now in 2021. This was largely where... 
the gospel of fear came from. This is the start of it. That that that, that really this is where that medieval Christianity really kicks off. What the hair shirts and the this is happening and shit. This yeah. is happening because you're bad, right? Yeah. So not surprisingly, a lot of energy and debate shifted towards the apocalypse, particularly as it was laid out in the book of Revelations. Scholars and mystics poured over the words of John of Patmos, trying to pair their experiences of these two great cataclysms and the stories they had heard with where they were on the track at the end of the world as they knew it coming to a close and Christ returning. Much as how today we have the doomsday preacher with the megaphone and the sandwich board sign saying, repent for the end is nigh, Sermons took on a decidedly grim feel, and religious figures filled the streets, preaching the end of all things. A big target for religious blame from the plague fell on Justinian himself for the new liberality of his laws from the Codex concerning both the role of women in society and sex workers. Of course, plenty of religious figures were also falling all over themselves to paint the plague as a good thing. The plague was proof of how much God loves us by wiping the sinners from the earth with it and providing an opportunity for those of us who has not come to Jesus or asked forgiveness to do so. Um, strikingly familiar from a previous episode where we talked about the earthquake of Port Royal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anytime you have this great cataclysm, the preachers come in, and as the Padre, I can say this, the preachers come in and say, this is... The result of all your sin. I mean, I assume they did it sounding a little less like Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh yeah, snapping <laughs> to a slim Jim. Listen, so. we're we're I I'm but, 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 you know we're we're yeah. an age that I remember when the homosexuals caused uh, Katrina. Yeah, this is, well, these are just scientific feminism facts. caused nine eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the same thing happened in in the bubonic plague, like, like in, the, in the black there's plague. There's nothing new. It, no, it, no, but it happened well, in the black a, plague. That, that's what I was going back to. That's yeah. what I was pointing to. Is and that, and these holy men were saying that you know this this is targeting the sinners. This is because they've done wrong, and cracks started to show very quickly whenever their flock yeah. started to die the same way, and they suddenly realized. These guys are full of shit. Yeah. And they turned on them, too. And this is the preview, because you have priests starting to die. And when this starts happening in the 13th and 14th, it's like... Or, as the Padre (laughs) would say, maybe they didn't get the message of the book where they said, we're all fucking bad. (laughs) So John of Ephesus, a Syrian abbot, wrote, quote, Although the plague was very frightening, grievous, and severe, it would not be right for us to call it not only a sign of threat and of wrath, but also a sign of grace and a call to repentance. For the scourge by its silence sent, as it were numerous messengers from one country to another and from city to city and to every place, just as if somebody were to say, turn back and repent, for behold, I am come. As in the days of Noah, when that blessed man together with his family heard the message of that threat and of perdition, he grew afraid and did not disregard it, but took care to build the ark. So also in this time, in like manner as did that blessed man, many people have managed in a few days to build ships for themselves consisting of almsgiving that might transport them across that flood of flame. Fuck oh, you, Jesus. John of Ephesus. Oh, Jesus. What a fucking nerd. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We're going to, you know, we're going to all repent because some bad thing has happened. We can't even do that in, you know, yeah. 2001 to 2021. Yeah. 
And of course, other things that were done that certainly didn't help were the organizing of mass vigils in the churches and huge processions and parades to demonstrate piety and pray for the plague to pass, following relics and icons about the streets of the cities, because both of these methods only served to bring huge numbers of people carrying plague fleas together in close proximity, which I believe today we call super spreader events. Which I believe today we would call the Alabama Cotton Festival. Yeah. Or a Trump <laughs> rally, or a or, or Pitt, Pitt Tennessee on Saturday, and of course much and much like <laughs> hey, but hey, we Pitt, won. we won. Pitt won. Hail the Pitt. Hail Pitt. So <laughs> these sorts of things would greet plagues throughout the entirety of Western history ever since, and there's no equivalent for this plague to the sheer nuttiness and brutality of groups like the Black Death would see, like the Flagellants, who I would love to do an episode on. Oh my on. god, they are so fucking great. But one phenomenon... <laughs> <Just> absolute <laughs> But It's so good. But one my, phen- wait, my, my nightmares are to actually wear a fucking hair shirt. My <laughs> god, that would hurt so bad. It's so fucking but, however, one phenomenon that was unique to this plague in this time and place was the popularization of the Steelite. While not exactly new, this special form of Christian ascetic really came into their own during the plague. Steelites get their name from the Greek word for pillar, stelos, because they would spend long amounts of time praying, fasting, and preaching from the tops of pillars. Stelos some, is my nickname in the bedroom. Or in, some not, case, or in some cases, very narrow brick towers. The idea was to either use the height of the pillar to separate themselves from the sinful masses below, or a more charitable motivation of trying to literally interpose themselves between an upset God and the people who were the target of that wrath in the hopes that God would see them first and hear their prayers or see their holiness and spare those down below. Now, as far as how the Steelites would go about things, I basically break them down into three groups. The first I call the look-at-me Steelites. These guys normally put themselves on top of a pillar in a public square that was normally about only 10 feet tall, Basically a platform from which to preach where everyone could see them. Essentially a raised pulpit in an outside area. The second group I call the good at COVID lockdown steelites, who tended to spend much longer amounts of time on much higher pillars, although no one seems to write about how exactly they got up there, and would basically have only a basket on a rope that they would lower down to the ground in order to receive food and drink from either fellow priests or, uh, and monks, or from charitable individuals. I'm sure. I'm, relative, I'm, I'm relatively they, uh, that they got up there by the first members of Delta Chi. <laughs> See, I'm just imagining just a religious yeah. David Blaine. So, they had sustenance, but they were still very much exposed to the elements, and of course on top of a small space at a decent height. Now, the third and final type I call the suicide mission steelites. And these were the guys, and they were all guys, I've never found an example of a female Steelite, who would head up to the top of a pillar without any sort of supplies, claiming that because of their holy mission, God was going to sustain them. They tended not to last long. Uh, Although there are stories of some Steelites living for decades at the top of pillars, these guys, with the exception of the first publicity-hungry group, didn't really have much written about most of them, because I have a feeling for a lot of them things didn't end well. Uh, basically, I think most of the time it was a series of the same three noises. Uh, 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 some, one of those yeah. noises was, "Hey, hey, yo, chuck me a donut up here." Well, no, I, it, yeah, the three noises are a surprised yelp, what can only be described as a meaty thwack, and a crowd of people going, "Ooh!" The Wilhelm scream. Yeah. While there would be other instances of ascetics becoming steelites <laughs> later in the medieval period, they did seem to crop up most often when disease outbreaks really went after urban populations. So, 
Speaking of ineffective methods of fighting the plague, as the last year in change has showed us, there are some people who will try any old shit to cure or prevent a disease. And the time of the plague outbreak was no different. It should We're almost talking to you, James Franco. Yeah. It should almost go without saying that in just about every major population center in the Byzantine world, there would have been hucksters and bullshit artists trying to flog all sorts of miracle cures on people, none of which worked. I mean, we can be almost sure of that. But even the trained physicians and those others who provided medical care, most of them monks and priests, believed in cures that were just as likely to kill you as they were to heal you, if not more so. Look, these people weren't stupid. They were well-suited to drawing logical conclusions about medicine. But when the baseline from which your logical leaps are being made are all fallacies, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Yeah, I mean, they, these people still definitely believed in the humors. They yeah. were some of the first people to believe in the humors. And it lasted for a very, very long time. Yep, because they believed in the work of a second-century Greek physician philosopher named Galen, who, uh, admittedly a brilliant guy, made huge advances in anatomy and physiology, as well as uh, surgical procedures. He still based most of his writing off of ideas like the humors, the four elemental fluids in the body that, if they are imbalanced, cause illness. So they believed in treatments like bloodletting, sometimes just cutting you, and sometimes using leeches, um, emetics to make you throw up, cathartics to make you shit out the bad. Of course, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of medicine religion crossover. So there were they were big on cures like prayer, fasting, celibacy, proximity to the relics of saints, uh, increased giving to the church, and sending family members to join monastic orders. Some stuff they were almost there on, like frustratingly close. So, evolution is slow. Like, keep in mind like, from a biological perspective, their brain is our brain. We have more context, and we have more Mm. scientific context in particular, but like, their problem-solving ability is essentially the same as our own. So, yeah, a lot of times they were in the ballpark. Well, like I said, they're just working with a different baseline. Yeah, Yeah, it's not like they, these... These things were invisible. Yep. These aren't like, fucking cavemen. But it like, just so yeah. happens that they, their baseline... They didn't understand that, that single-cell organisms were a thing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it just so happens that the leaps they made from this baseline led to some pretty weird shit. Right. <clears throat> and like I said, there was so much stuff they were so close on, like herbalism, which in some cases can be an effective treatment for certain conditions. I mean, they, they knew about using ginger root to cure upset stomach, honey and chamomile to treat sore throat, and effective herbal balms and salves to treat skin conditions and burns. I mean, there was urinalysis, where doctors would observe the color, smell, and, yes, taste of a patient's urine to determine certain conditions, which is almost there without the need for tasting it. Well, and even in... Wait, your doctor doesn't take... Am I... Should I not go to a Craigslist? That's what the IOC does. That's what the IOC does. Whenever they're doing doping, that's how they find out. They know. (laughs) They fucking know. Tastes like vodka. This is a Russian athlete. you, you, And you have to do it in their mouths because... That's the only way it's sterile. Um, These are just facts. Well, anyway, <laughs> it's well, sterile, uh, and I but, like the taste. But, but what you were talking about? It, it, go back to the the first yeah. part, the bloodletting. We still do leeches and bloodletting. Mm-hmm. Well, there, so it's not blood it, it is, it's, it's changed. It's yeah. so, so leeches yeah. are not a thing. To, leeches certainly are. But but yeah. It, yeah. well. But, but certainly it was are. it was yeah. there yes. because because of these discoveries. That, yeah. they were close. Like I said, they were they close were on close. some stuff, and they were right about a few things. Right, Leaches but it's more fun to talk about the things yeah. they weren't right about. Yeah, yeah. and so yeah, but like I mean, great. It, now it, we got a bunch of sick leeches just biting yeah. people on the ankles. Well, I mean, it, stay away from the swamps. In, in, it's better than that vaccine. Well, in, <laughs> in, well, in modern medicine, we we test urine for certain conditions, and we used urine qualities as an indicator of certain aspects of health. 
We, we do. S- we still do. No, yeah. Of course we do. I mean, they There's believed a in, chart. They believed in the lancing of boils and the draining of cysts, which is perfectly common today. Mm-hmm. They just had a hard time doing it in a sterile manner. Right. Uh, small doses of henbane, hemlock, and opium poppy were used as a painkiller, which well, they are all they are overprescribed today and yeah, addictive. But but, but they're all opioids are effective. It. Yeah, opioids are effective painkillers. Even the Galenist idea of miasmas, which are collections of fetid air that bore disease with it, was almost there. Our own evolution teaches us to avoid things that smell bad because they might make us sick. Yeah. But physicians at the time recommended keeping the miasma at bay by having lots of braziers burning, even with incense in it to drive the miasma away with a sweet smell, or to just keep it at bay with a shit ton of smoke. And here's the thing, that does kind of work. By having these open flames around you all the time, you're making the air too hot and far mm-hmm. less humid, creating an environment that is more hostile to the Y-pestis bacteria. It any bacteria, kind of actually. Yeah, any yeah, bacteria, it but especially Y-pestis. So keeping the bad miasmas out by covering the mouth and nose, preferably with something that you would pack herbs into, was recommended, and masking up is certainly effective at lessening your chances of getting the plague by respiratory well, what means. did they do about their personal freedoms and identity? That's the beauty of having an autocracy. <laughs> I mean, if look, if it was if it was President Justinian and the Byzantine Congress, this might be a very different story. We wouldn't be. Yeah, I, I'm just gonna say, it's good to be yeah. the king. Well, and plenty and plenty of <laughs> and plenty of physicians at the time recommended staying away from the plague just by isolating. Which, yeah, we so know that works. works, right? But there was a laundry it, list. It either of, works or it <laughs> makes you just want to kidnap the yeah. governor. But there was a laundry list of treatments for the plague and its symptoms that make just no damn sense and in some cases are outright insane. There was a counter-movement to the miasmic hypothesis that said that the only way to drive away the bad air containing the plague was by surrounding yourself with worse air. And so you could find people who were buying into this idea surrounding rubbish piles, open sewer pits, or literally sticking their nose into the public toilets... To take the biggest hits of the worst stink they could get themselves close to. They are huffing shit vapors. But even the logic there was semi-sound. Because they thought... Well, they thought this because people who worked in those environments tended to get sick less frequently. Because those were the people who take a bath every day. Because they actually bathed every fucking day because they got covered in shit. Yes. Now, I I gotta tell you, Kyle, I have to... Milkmaids. I, I have to disagree with you because the miasma people, the people that wanted to smell sweet shit... Fucking sheep, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So in some extreme examples, people even decided that the worst smell they could get to was the plague dead themselves. And so they'd set out at night to uncover the newer plague pits, crawl down in amongst the recently dead, and breathe deep with predictable consequences. That's, uh, in the industry, (laughs) that's known as when the trash takes itself out. Yeah. No, in the industry, that's known as Mike Liddell. While the later medieval age would give rise to the metal pills that would be swallowed and then dug out of a person's dumps, washed and reused, the root of this was a Byzantine practice that called for taking fine shavings of precious metal and dropping them into wine and drinking it. They oh, drank Goldsch- shit. Goldschlager. No, they drank no, they- fine metal shavings in wine. Goldschlager. <laughs> Colloidal silver, anybody? Alex Jones selling it. There's that lady from Love Has Won who was taking it to treat cancer and she turned gray. Oh, God. Amy Carlson, I think her name was? I, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Like, yeah, all of a sudden she just showed up, she was blue. Yeah, <laughs> and she mummified herself. Yep. So another mixture called for honey, anise seed, and the piss of a male child, specifically male, and recommended drinking this and this alone for five days straight. 
One plague potion called for the boiling of four toads in water. Four specifically, and I don't know why. Cooking Three them is straight out. Yeah. <laughs> Five is too it's many. It's the old switcheroo. Yeah. Cooking them until soft and sludgy, and then reducing the mixture down before adding butter and consuming. I just put in five. Yeah. No, no, three, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Enemas to treat the plague were popular, often with wine, vinegar, animal blood, or, especially in a cure popular with the nobility, the bile of a wild boar. Again, why are you bringing up my weekends? <laughs> it's one of the founding tenets of the Bob Crane sex cult. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, eating a small loaf of bread with a crushed emerald in it was said to work 100% of the time, although this is one of the more expensive cures. Uh, my That's personal... what Rogan just did. It yeah. was that in horse pills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It turns out all you need to beat it is $180 million. Yeah. Now, my, Ooh, personal like favorite, my personal favorite wacky treatment, though, particularly for the bubos, was the dung poultice. This involved taking pine resin and egg yolk and mixing it with a turd. Now, any old turd would work in a pinch, but the medical texts of the time recommended a human turd. However, it cannot be a turd from the human whose bubo you are treating. That is apparently redundant. I, they, the texts say this. It cannot be a turd from the person you are tr- putting the poultice on. Right. Yeah, this is not. This is not just word of mouth. I no. mean, this is this is scientific. This is from texts. I will say, like fecal transfusion yeah. is a thing that we do today, and it's uh, in super conditions. effective. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm this just is, this, this, this runs is, a little. It's different, different but yeah. again, you, they're, they're kind of they're they're. they're oh, this right is a long road to hell, buddy. Oh, the spice yeah. Yeah. And I'm just gonna say, what's the spice? Right. Yeah. So you take this mixture, you let it solidify, and then you use it and use a bandage to affix it to the area with the bubo, and hey, presto, problem solved. Of course, some people thought that the best cure was a violent one. There was a school of thought that the plague was spread through the visual gaze of the infected, and small gangs of vigilantes began traveling around, finding plague sufferers, and using daggers to blind them. Of course, with the religious blaming of the continued sin of women and sex workers that was obviously the source of the plague, they also became the target for vengeful attackers, particularly packs of monks that would raid the brothels of the cities, setting them aflame and beating the workers to death with clubs. Finally, while there's no evidence of the mass anti-Semitic violence that would be seen in the years of the Black Death in the 14th century that would lead to the massacre of tens of thousands of European Jews, there are mentions of a couple smaller-scale isolated incidents in various parts of the empire perpetrated by certain ex- uh, extremists. So since the medical... Well, it, 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 anti-Semitism has kind of been a thing yeah. long before 500. It, since there were Semites. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a slow burn, but in comparison to the anti-Semitic violence you saw during the Black Death, okay. this was small-scale. It happened, and it's awful that it happened. But, it's, but it wasn't systemic. But like it was it not became, as systemic as well, it would be I, in later places. I would suggest that it was systemic because it happened before. And we, we talked about this in the last mm-hmm. episode. You know, When anything goes wrong, blame the Jews. But the, the, the massacre of Jews during the, um, during the Black Death was, mace, was basically based upon the blood libel conspiracy, right. which didn't really come about until the 9th or 10th century. Okay. This is more just othering. It's yeah, okay. it's and it's and in the Black Death, Jews would be massacred 
before the plague got to you as a way of heading it off. This was, well, fuck, we've tried everything else. Maybe this will work. Uh, okay. And it's, okay, it's so it's a different it's a different way of coming about. It's not on a better scale. It's, it, it, it's awful. <laughs> it's horrific. Right. But mm, yeah, it's compared to what would come in the next plague outbreak. Nothing even close. All right, I get you. Now, since the medical treatments of the time weren't likely to work, it would seem that the onus of fighting the plague would fall to measures put forth by Justinian's government. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, if we were to say that Justinian did absolutely nothing to help, that would be an improvement on how he actually went about dealing with the plague. There is one, one recorded measure taken by Justinian's government to fight the plague, and that was the funding and setting up in Constantinople of large public basins filled with vinegar in which the public could wash their faces and hands. I mean, today we see public hand sanitizer stations everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's the same concept, really. And while this isn't going to be enough on its own to stop the plague, it is an effective tactic, and as we well know today, and I'm sure it would have saved at least some lives that would have otherwise been lost. Uh, although the constant smell of vinegar would have taken some getting used to. These, well, however, I mean, it's better than the 100-mile yeah. radius of rotting corpses. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. And, and vinegar, is it's a proven disinfectant. I mean, yeah. it, it still oh, yeah. is. It's, it's effective. And uh, sitting right there on the counter, as, yeah. as we are recording in an actual people, kitchen, people it's not just a clever all name. The, time today. Uh, the reason I pickle instead of can is yeah. because there are so many awful bacteria that I don't trust myself to completely eliminate. Yeah. And there are things like like these bacteria are, are incredibly resilient. Uh, in yeah. some canning, right. uh, they will they will survive for as long as that whatever food stuff is in the can without oxygen or sunlight. Yeah, right. like, it can why... be decades. And once that is in you, and I, I apologize, I don't remember the name of it. Once it's in you, you're done. Because, uh, botulism? It, no, it's no, not no, botulism. It, it, well, it's it, it's the reason my anthrax. It's the reason my mother, because she used It's to, a derivative of anthrax. My, my mother right. grew up canning in the South. And it's it's the reason... I, I can't remember the name either, but it's the reason why you never buy a dented can mm-hmm. in the store. Well, that's that's botulism, because the oxygen... No, that, no it's, it, 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 it's... I can't remember the name of the other one, but it... It can but activate we'll, that. We'll get lost. We'll get anyway. lost on this. We'll, yeah, but they're, they're we'll also turn, resilient we'll to modern yeah. antibiotics. They are. Yeah. This is why so, I this hot locks. <laughs> yeah, so but, these, uh, but because I, I use vinegar in my pickling yeah. brine, it kills all that shit. It kills everything. Right. However, <laughs> these basins were only installed after the plague had been present in the capital for a year. Mm. And they were only up for a few months before they were ordered to be smashed by the Patriarch of Constantinople because they defied the will of God. So you mean... Like a mayor defied a mandate from the boss at the top, and well, even though really, what he was doing was actually going to fix everything, Ron Darius. Well, he didn't really, he didn't really defy it because Ronis DeSantis, because the patriarch <laughs> ordered these things smashed, and Justinian, who had to walk a very fine tightrope with balancing his power with the power of the church, basically just sat back and went, eh, just kind of let it happen. And the plague took a huge economic toll on the empire. You know, we talk about death, but we don't talk about the poverty that comes with it. And large sectors of trade practically ceased during the outbreaks, and Justinian didn't care. He applied the same level of greed to the collections of his taxes that he had during the famine half a decade before. It didn't matter if you couldn't grow your crop because all of your family were dead. You owed him a certain amount of what that farm was capable of producing at the best of times, and damned if he wasn't going to get it. I mean, he had armies to support, a government to fund, and a lifestyle to maintain. He reinforced to his tax collectors that they could use whatever means they wanted to to get the taxes owed and the brutal punishments used on the, during the famine on those who couldn't pay, like 
Floggings, branding, amputation, blinding, cutting out the tongue, selling family members into slavery, the seizure or burning of the property, and full-on execution were still all on the table. However, Justinian decided to up the ante. Procopius writes, quote, when pestilence swept through the whole known world, and notably the Roman Empire, wiping out most of the farming community and of necessity leaving a trail of desolation in its wake, Justinian showed no mercy towards the ruined freeholders. Even then, he did not refrain from demanding the annual tax, not only the amount of which he assessed each individual, but also the amount for which his deceased neighbors were liable. That's right, if someone died and couldn't deliver on their taxes, their closest neighbors or relatives would be hit up for it instead by legal decree of Justinian. This is something I want to touch on in the next episode. Yeah. It's just how he handles a lot of these things. It's very out of character. Yeah. But just the way that he handles these these cataclysms. And, I mean, his, his way to combat the plague was to tax the dead. Yeah. Once there's an emergency, he just goes from zero to motherfucker mm-hmm. in a blank, man. And it's... And it's included in like his conquest but again yeah. like i said we'll, we'll talk mean, about it in I the mean, next episode. shit dude everyone has issues with the irs but if the woman <laughs> in the next apartment from me dies they don't put the lien on my account mm-hmm. yeah so he also had a law passed that if someone died intestate without a declared will then their property was all passed directly into the hands of the byzantine state circumventing centuries of roman tradition that it all passed automatically into the hands of the assumed heir written will or not Justinian's callousness towards the suffering of his people, however, would be redressed, at least in part, by that big, beautiful bitch known as karma. We don't know the vector, we don't know how he came to get it, but we do know through several authors that in the autumn of 542, Justinian was struck by the same disease ravaging his empire. He had buboes develop on his groin armpits and a really massive one on the left side of his neck, and was feverish and delirious for some two weeks, constantly crying out in his suffering thing is, there isn't much evidence for the particular methods by which he was treated, or how that treatment differed from the rest of his, those received by the rest of his people, but I'm willing to bet that by what we just discussed, uh, they probably weren't the most pleasant. I'm going to guess, just based on my knowledge of Augustus and Blackbeard, it probably had to do with a Dairy Queen spoon of mercury. Honestly, I mean, to be serious, it was that's a, probably... That's, that's a very different affliction there, Padre. <laughs> it, was, it was almost certainly Lansing of the Bubos. Mm. Oh, for sure. And then, oh, that was and standard then practice. Whatever the poultices were, I'm sure were Poultices, yeah, weren't potions, either. enemas, who knows. But you're going to do it, well, well, better fed, with a better immune system, right. and with yeah. better yeah, he was clearly He was clearly set up for success here. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kyle, I was joking around, but... It, 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 what I, oh, I what thought I, you were I dead meant, serious. What, what, what I meant, what I did mean was uh, Mercury. Because that was one of the cures for everything. Did, were they using uh, and, mercury at that time? Antimony was the big one yeah. for the Byzantines. Yeah, it was gonna, mercury ended up coming a little later, but it was the yeah. same. It was the same reasoning. Yeah. So what we do know are the after effects of the disease on Justinian's brain and body. He was can't his head. Uh, well, he was left with a limp due to the buboes in his groin, and he spent the rest of his life with his head canted to the left due to a big recess in the musculature of his neck left over after the bubo there went away. And this is super common. Mm-hmm. And, and again, with oh, the, the later Black Death, yeah. be, again, because we said before, it was, you know, your flesh went necrotic, yeah. so it never recovered. It, it doesn't grow back. Now, you can you can regrow it now with modern techniques, mm-hmm. but in the 6th yeah, century, but forget it's, it. I mean, no. it's pretty right. complicated. I mean, it'll yeah. seal back over, it'll it'll be, you know, whole, yeah. but yeah. the muscle will never rebuild. It's Now, it's said that he never recovered his looks, and he was left with a sallow face, and the weight he lost while he was sick, he never really gained back. He also suffered for the rest of his life from chronic digestive issues, which 
apparently weren't an issue for him before because they've made such a big deal out of noting it. Then, there were the effects on his mind. Now, we'll explore this in full in the next episode, but it's not hard to surmise that the prolonged fever may have left Justinian with permanent brain damage. There was, however, apparently much rejoicing over his survival, at least according to the chroniclers of the time who were out to make him look good. A massive procession of Thanksgiving was organized through the capital with hundreds of thousands of people taking part, uh, many at sword point, according to reports from the time. It's right at the Roman. height, right very at Roman. the height of a massive outbreak within the city, making it possibly history's biggest single super spreader event. It's also worth noting that Procopius apparently caught the plague as well and made it through, as noted in correspondence that survives. But he doesn't write about it, and we have no idea when he got it or what his battle with it was like. Now we'll never know exactly how many people the plague of Justinian carried away, but the scale of the trauma and loss must have been absolutely massive. There are stories of entire towns falling victim to the disease. And while it's true that there are several Byzantine sites whose archaeological record ceases in the mid-500s, there may have been a couple and there may have been a couple cases of small communities getting entirely wiped out. It's more likely that these places were hit by the plague, probably pretty hard, and the survivors picked up and moved on, or consolidated with the next town down the road that had also lost a lot of people. Right. We see this a lot in especially in medieval England post-Black mm-hmm. Death. Well, I think you would see that naturally anywhere. They strengthen numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's that same it's that, that same survival principle. instinct. Yeah, yeah. yeah pulling, community pull, is definitely yeah. a thing. community pulling of resources, everything. It uh, it makes a lot of sense. This is not meant as a criticism. Right. Absolutely, no. it's just what happened. Now, more rural areas with sparser populations or fewer connections to the wider world may have been quite a bit safer from the plague, but there is plenty of evidence that they were hit too. Uh, but with a much lower mortality rate than the cities, perhaps about 10 to 15%. One particularly hard-hit group were the armies that the Byzantines had in the field. Army camps are surrounded by the sorts of rubbish dumps that rats love to feed on, and it's a lot of people in close proximity, not always uh, in the best of sanitary conditions. Records, records speak of thousands of soldiers and sailors dying among the armies and fleets, and the remainder, remainder unable to bury the dead. A letter from Belisarius from 542 that survives talks of his army in Italy losing 5,000 men in a month. The cities were where the toll was the worst. While claims from chroniclers of cities losing three quarters or nine of every ten people are almost certainly exaggerated, it's not unreasonable to believe that by the end of the plague, some of the empire cities probably had only half of their pre-plague population levels if they'd experienced repeated outbreaks. Certainly many more lost a quarter, maybe a third of their, of their people. Evagrius writes that his beloved Alexandria lost a third of its population. Athens supposedly also lost a third. Corinth a third, Syracuse a quarter. Antioch lost maybe 30% of its population of 200,000. Justinian's hometown of the city of Teresium in the northern Balkans lost five, maybe 6,000 out of its 20,000 people. Some cities, between the losses of the famine and the climate cataclysm and uh, the plague, simply ceased to exist. Abandoned as people went elsewhere seeking refuge, food, or simply a new start after a decade of ceaseless hell. The city of Elusa in the in Israel's Negev Desert shows archaeological evidence of having shrunk from a population of about 12,000 at the beginning of the 6th century to a footprint that could support about 200 people 50 years later. Good lord. The Persian capital of Tessaphon lost a third of its population. Bishop Gregory of Tours in the Frankish territories wrote of the city of Narbonne losing half of its population of 10,000. 
Now, while we know that farther-flung areas like the Arabian Peninsula, Scandinavia, and Britain were affected, and Chronicles talk of a lot of people dying, the mortality rates may have been lower due to climate conditions that are more hostile to the virus, perhaps with 10% of the population falling to the disease. The outbreaks that made their way into Asia, in places like Western China, India, and coastal, uh, and in places like coastal Africa, probably had similar rates of loss, but again, much larger population numbers to deal with. But nowhere suffered more than Constantinople itself. As we said earlier, claims of 10,000 deaths a day are probably inaccurate, but it's not unreasonable to assume that as much as 35 to 40 percent of the city's population, some claims say even 50 percent, this is anywhere between 300,000 and 400,000 people could have died of the plague. Yeah, the numbers I saw were uh, t- 25 on the low, uh, 25 percent on the low number to 60 yeah. percent on the on the high number, and obviously the 60 percent would be a you know, uh, yeah. of course, it's going to be the high number. It right. was it's going to be much the expected mortality yeah. rate. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah. it, it, I mean, it, well, even if it's a thirty-three percent, here's the thing: is a certain pop portion of the population actually seemed to have plague immunity, mm-hmm. or maybe they were just lucky. Who knows? But yeah, forty percent seems like a pretty accurate number. I mean, it's entirely attainable by that scale of outbreak. And forty percent, and when I say forty percent, forty percent of the known world. When we say the known world, we're talking about from Vladivostok to Portugal, south to Nigeria. We're not talking about you know just the uh, that little ring that you see mm-hmm. in the back of a evangelical Bible. Massive numbers. We're talking yeah. <laughs> across most the, of the known world. Well, across the entire empire, perhaps as many as twenty to thirty percent of the total population, somewhere between ten and fifteen million people would have died out of about 50 million or so before the twin disasters. Between the famine and the plague, as many as half of the empire's people may have been gone by the end of that hellish decade. Worldwide, it's estimated that somewhere between 30 and 40 million people perished in the eight years of this plague pandemic. With that proportion of the population at the time, it would be like losing half a billion people from today's world to an outbreak. Now, how the plague came to an end, the simple fact is we don't really know. With modern outbreaks, rapid testing, the use of antibiotics to slow infection rates, and isolating exposed people means that we can stop breakouts pretty quickly, but in terms of these pre-modern pandemics, it could be for any number of reasons. Maybe the death toll had thinned the population to a point where continued spread was unsustainable. In times of mass crisis like this, trade slows down, and that helps slow down the propagation of the bacterium across wider areas. Perhaps the strain of the bacterium had evolved to a dead end, leaving itself less able to spread, and as so often happens with other viruses and bacterial outbreaks. A particularly cold winter could provide an environment less suited to the plague spread. Either way, by about 545, the massive sweeping rates of infection had died down in the Byzantine Empire, although for the next few years, flare-ups were still quite frequent. On the further reaches of Europe and Asia's periphery, The plague, which had taken time to reach these areas, persisted longer until about 549. Same goes for the Arabian Peninsula, the areas around the Black Sea, and the further reaches of northern Africa. Finally, by the end of the 540s, it seemed like everything was all over, and the plague had burned itself out. And it had, for a bit. The World Health Organization doesn't consider the first plague pandemic as having ended until 767 AD, because in the two centuries after our story, between 15 and 18 major waves of plague have been identified in the historical record, 
estimated to have killed easily another 25 to 30 million people in total. Evagrius Scholasticus would catch the plague on an outbreak in Alexandria in 562, and he would survive. But in both that outbreak and a later one in 575, he would lose his parents, his wife, both of his brothers, all three of his sisters, all seven of his children, and all five of his grandchildren. The plague would continue to stalk the Byzantine Empire, looming over it in the future as new enemies would make their presence known. The plague would go dormant then for nearly six centuries until the 1340s, where it would come back in what was the form of an even deadlier strain and once again ravage Byzantine lands. But the Black Death is a story for another time. Despite everything that had happened in the previous decade, an unimaginable natural catastrophe in addition to the worst disease outbreak ever experienced by mankind up to that point, two of the worst recorded events ever endured, the Byzantine Empire survived, and so barely had Justinian. Rome had been beaten pillar to post economically, socially, politically, and had experienced death and destruction on a massive scale, but the empire still stood. Maybe this was a function of all of her neighbors being just as shattered by the same events. Maybe it was reflective of just how powerful and organized the empire had been. But though the, M the Byzantine Empire was intact, could the same be said for Justinian? And as he approached the latter half of his reign, how would his scars, both physical and mental, make themselves known in the way he would rule? Could the survival of the empire persist? Could he regain the momentum he had before, bringing about his goal of reuniting all the lost lands of Rome, bringing about a new Pax Romana, a golden age? Now these questions will be examined next time in our final episode, our first four-parter, on the reign of Justinian. Now, next time, things go from absolutely god-awful, by the way, good job hanging in, everybody, and I say that both to the guys in this room and to all of you listening out there. It's going to go from god-awful to pretty weird. Uh, we're switching gears from endless screaming to endless scheming. The next one won't be as heavy, but it's certainly going to be interesting. And that's where we're going to stop for now. Well, you know, I went, one of the things that it's, I find interesting going into the fourth episode is you don't get through this this much crap mm -hmm. without some sort of populism, some sort of Asher pole that is the, the, the reign of the emperor. I mean, I don't care whether the guy's a good guy or a bad guy in this sense but you don't get through what we just went through the last what four hours yeah. recording without a guy that is a constant mm -hmm. and I, I guess to me going to the end of what we're going to talk about is what is it that what is it that makes makes that man that man and we're going to see if we can figure that out but here's the thing the two that's interesting is you have these two enormous cataclysms that hit this empire with a double whammy and the person who almost finishes the job of destroying that empire is the guy who's its leader mm -hmm. right through these ruinous practices he almost finishes the job. He really does through his own sheer greed. Now, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. God, we don't have context that relate to that. Yep. And we're going to talk about that in part four. And see, that's what yeah. that, that's what I'm questioning. What is the balance? What is what is that thing that brings brings Byzantium together? 
dealing with this. Yeah. And at the same time, this is a guy that's willing to wipe it all out. But we are going to see some pushback. More than we've already seen. Yeah, more than, you know, how much the of the city riots. how much of the city has already been knocked down in riots. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's they, true. They did have they had more room to bury the dead within the city walls because so much had been destroyed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they still ran out of room. Yep, they still did. Early. In that first season. That's the thing. 150,000 people in three months in a city. That's 20% of a city's population disappearing in 90 days. I mean, it, it's the population, it really puts the, it, the population of the city limits of Pittsburgh is a quarter million. That's 25, uh, 250,000 people. Mm-hmm. That would literally But there, there wasn't a lot of business real yeah. estate in uh, Byzantium. Like the uh, Constantinople uh, set up a little differently. It, it's tough but, to like, say that. It's tough to equate that city to I'm, like a modern I'm, city. I'm, I'm maybe doing, New York. I'm, I'm maybe doing, Tokyo. I'm doing that on. I'm mm-hmm. doing that in terms of population, for a population yeah. analogy. But just to provide, yeah, an, ex, an, ex, an idea yeah. of an example that we can all look at. Yeah. That's right in front of us. Yeah, it's 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 devastating. It's brutal, and that is a level of it, nobody came out of this unscarred. No, because everybody no. just sees death and screaming. And terror and religion turning dark and just it, it's everything. I mean, it's yeah. it's mind boggling. And this is why I was like, this was a stressful, dark yeah. research. Before the advent of modern medicine, these plagues, these bacterial plagues, ended because there weren't enough hosts for them to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, they burned out through natural means. Right, it burned out. It that. burned out the population. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you kill off enough hosts, and then you can't host anymore. Right. Yeah, that's well, why. That's why most bacteria adapt. Yeah. God, that's going to be a really dark way to get COVID herd immunity. It's it's well. Ask the Swedes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you get COVID COVID herd immunity? <laughs> My God, he's insane. <laughs> Here, cheeky, 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 cheeky. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to pick it up next time. We're going to tell the final part of the story of Justinian. Uh, Chris, people want to find us out there in the world of uh, of the online. If you'd like to find us on social media, look no further than uh, Podcast TRR on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at TRRPod. Uh, you can drop us a line uh, at TRRPod at gmail.com. And, again, please, wherever you find your... Uh, wherever you find your podcast, be it Google, Apple, Stitcher, any of the any of the above, uh, like, review, subscribe, download, share, uh, do whatever you can to help the help the fellas out. Yep. And uh, if you like what we do, the research we do, the stories we tell, please consider supporting our podcast on Patreon. Uh, producing the podcast, posting the podcast, it does take cash, um, and we uh, we would love your support. Uh, for as little as a buck a month, you can get access to exclusive content, which is going to include a wrap-up roundtable on our four-part series after everything's all said and done. That is going to be for Patreon subscribers only, as gonna, well as early episode releases. There's going to be so many unreleased poop jokes. It's going to yeah. be a lot of sobbing. Yeah. A lot of open, open tears. This is just going to be us just sitting there silently going, And again, guys, it's a dollar. Yeah. It's a dollar. It's yeah. But yeah, you can... You pay uh, all that money for Netflix, and it has like three <laughs> good things. Yeah. You can go to pod. Uh, I mean, half of them. Yeah, you can go to www.patreon.com/trrpod to support us. And again, every cent we take in goes right back into the production of the show. This doesn't go into our wallets; it goes into the books, the mics, the hosting services, absolutely everything. So the whiskey, 
So thank you in advance for your support. We love you guys. Um, uh, speaking of support, uh, I do want to take a moment to thank one of our uh, one of the friends of the podcast uh, who is in the front lines of, of you know our, our contemporary. It's not a plague. But uh, there's a lot of unpleasantness going on. But, it is uh, a pandemic, though. Yes, it it's is. definitely a pandemic. And uh, Padre, uh, if you want to take a moment, because uh, I know this is this is definitely yeah. I I don't want to mow well, your lawn on this. Well, one. no, well, you're not mowing my lawn. Uh, but we just want to give a shout out to my little brother, um, James Ornette. He's uh, you heard him uh, when we were uh, doing the uh, Dan Sickles episode. Dan Sickles uh, in the Black Sox game. Yeah, he's going to be. He's he's actually he's a guy that's. Uh, he loves what we do, and you know, I, I, I guess I would call him our fifth host. Yeah, we're you definitely going to have him back again you know, sometime soon. He he's he's our recurring guest host, and we're, right now he's uh, flying over the skies of West Virginia. Um, he's dealing with this pandemic um, on the front lines, and I think you guys need to know that he's uh, he's in neopediatrics um, as a transport uh, respiratory therapist. Yeah. So I mean, he's he's dealing with people that have. COVID. He's in the and, thick of it, you know, and 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 he's, um, he he is absolutely on the front lines. He's a frontline infantry gunner, and I, I and, and Captain, I I appreciate you bringing that up just because I want to say, if he were here, and he can't be here because he's out there working his ass off. Right, he's, I'm sure he would like. He is the kind of person that we would want to have involved. Oh, in he would love episode. this and, series. And, and, however, and, however, and you know, certainly and more he, pressing things. Guy's a little busy. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what he would say? And I'm going to say this, and he did without apologies. This isn't about fucking politics. Get the fucking shot. Yeah. Because I, I I'm tired of my I'm tired of my brother coming home and having to call me because he he, he you know he he and his colleagues are dealing with his shit. Yeah. Um, this this is the plague of the unvaccinated. Yeah. Get the shot. This isn't about whether you support Trump, whether you support Biden. Just get it, because yeah. that's what that's what these guys are begging for. This is what I get every day when I talk to him and his colleagues. Yeah. And this little per- and this pernicious little fucker that's out there, it doesn't give a fuck about yeah. your politics. No, it, it really care. doesn't. Yeah. It you did care. the last one. <laughs> you did the one before no. that. Or the one before that. Or the no. one before that. And the next one won't either. And the one after that won't. And it's just... It, so let's take just, this... Just let's protect you know what? yourselves. You know, you know what? We're, we're not clanging pots. Let's clang beers. So, uh, let's take a, so go out there, get the shot, and let's kick this little fucker yeah. into its grave. You know, as I mentioned before, you know, fight or flight was removed. Like, there was no fight or flight. It was flight. Now we can fight. We have the opportunity. Like, fight is back on the table. We have the tools if you're not a dumb yeah. fuck. Let's do this. Get it <laughs> over with so we can do shots in person again. Yeah. And you know what? Like you said, Chris, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for throwing, throwing and, Jimmy out there. And yes. thank you, Jim. First and, first and to, foremost. To Jim out there, uh, to my sister, Angela, resident doctor. Yes, absolutely. She's in, fam- she's in family medicine, my sister, so my she's not normally... So she's not normally dealing with this every day, but she has butted up against this thing. Let's and, get those uh, boys home. Let's get those boys and girls it, home. It, it takes a fucking toll. So let's yeah. knock this fucker out so they can get back to... And look, they're out there. They're doing their jobs. They're doing them well. Yes, they are. Yeah. But let's give them a fucking break. Exactly. And let's finish this thing. Exactly. So in the spirit of finishing this thing, we're going to finish this thing. This podcast episode. Join us next time for part four, our final part our series on Justinian. It's been a long road to walk. Yeah, it is. And we're through the muck. 
we're heading down the home stretch, and the home stretch is going to be a little easier to process. Uh, I'm going to go sit outside in the dark and just stare at the ground for a while. I'm just going to go listen to Morrissey and be sad. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go, going to go, going to go shoegaze and, uh, think about the crazy Justinian, and he's coming. So, uh, prepare for crazy Justinian, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hold fast, everyone. Be well, be safe. Bye. Bye.